Hello and welcome to the Venture Researcher Podcast. We're finishing the year with five specially themed podcasts sharing some of the narrated blogs we've published throughout the year. I'm Adam Smith, I'm the Programme Director for Dementia Researcher at University College London, and I'm delighted to be introducing these special shows. All this week, we'll be covering some amazing science and psychosocial care research, exploring public engagement, and with the rise of Omicron, we'll go back to earlier in the year and some of the lessons learnt from previous lockdowns and think about well-being and resilience. But for now, let's get back to today. Today we've selected four blogs which are perfect for new PhD and master's students, anyone thinking of working in the dementia research field. Our first blog comes from Dr. Anna Volkmer. Published back in January 2021, Anna discusses her work and how she finds the implementation of her discoveries and translating research into services exciting. Implementation science. Why dementia research is the most exciting place to be working. I was first motivated to move from a clinical career to a research career by people living with dementia and their families. I was seeing people with dementia trying to deliver evidence-based care and finding there was little available evidence. I also realised that this lack of evidence was, and is, having a knock-on effect on commissioning of services for this group. But it was a colleague who was embarking on her own research career who really inspired me. She advised me to get in a corner and no one else is in and make it your own. The realisation that research in this corner of speech and language interventions for dementia was a pretty empty corner illustrated the enormous potential impact of the work I could do. So as I embarked on my PhD, I undertook lots of training to help me on my journey in developing and trialling the complex intervention I was working on. This included training in survey development, systematic literature reviews, qualitative research in healthcare methods, trial design, and of course, statistical methods. I used the Medical Research Council guidelines on developing complex interventions to guide my work. This provides a kind of framework comprising four dynamic phases where one may move forward and backward between different phases. So phase one is development of inter intervention. Phase two is the feasibility and piloting work. Phase three is the evaluation. And finally, phase four, the implementation. During my PhD, I focused on phases one and two, and it was exhilarating to do this work, I have to say. I started with nothing, and I finished with this novel intervention embedded in an online training package I'd developed, hosted on the university website. I had also completed an NHS-based randomised control pilot feasibility study, and as I looked forward, I was keen to find out how I could translate this into clinical practice. In my post doctoral work, I've recently embarked on further training in implementation science to plan for these next stages of my research programme. I'm only just dipping my toe in, but I've realised that I should have concentrated on implementation from the very beginning, for it's this that drove me in the first instance, the science of implementation of evidence into healthcare. And though I am a fan of frameworks, and there are many useful ones in implementation science, I've realised 
the art of implementation is perhaps a bit more creative than that. Tricia Greenhow, one of the gurus of implementation science, highlights the work of many researchers in her book, How to Implement Evidence-Based Healthcare. And I was struck by Ioannidis' work to identify clinical useful research. He turns the whole process around and emphasizes that research must satisfy particular criteria, which are, number one, research must be designed to address a real and important problem. And I would say mine is, though of course I'm biased, but I have asked many people with PPA what they want and this was one of them. Number two, it must add substantially and systematically to what we already know. I think so. Number three, it's design was pragmatic using real world, world patients. So mine was co-produced by people with PPA and their families and then piloted in the real NHS. Number four, it measures outcomes that matter to patients. Now, this is a tricky one. I'm going to come back to this one. Number five, the intervention is good value for money. So four therapy sessions with a speech and language therapist is pretty reasonable. Dare I say cheap. Number six, the intervention is feasible and acceptable in the real world. Well, yes, we've actually got evidence to prove this. And number seven, study data are available for verification and change. Well, they soon will be. Dare I say it, but outcome measures are perhaps one of the trickiest things for intervention research in dementia. Outcomes that matter are often not those that are actually the most scientific. One example being the feedback I received from the wife of a gentleman I was working with in my study. They had completed all the rating scales and made the obligatory video recording I'd asked for, but as they left the room, she explained that the therapy had given them back their marriage. She'd reported that she thought their communication difficulties were a result of her husband not wanting to be with her anymore and that he'd become this selfish person. Now she had developed an understanding of these difficulties and identified strategies to support their conversations. She felt completely different about the whole thing. I attended a lecture by another researcher in the field of implementation science, Annette Boaz, who described this type of evidence as an evidence-informed story being an important part of a bigger picture. She emphasized that these stories were important in changing practice. And she explained people who can tell these stories, who are trustworthy and passionate, can champion these changes. These stories are only one tool in the broader implementation science toolbox, alongside things like outcome measures and evidence and traditional implementation frameworks and the champions themselves. Now, ultimately, I believe that the research I can do will change people's lives so that they can live better, more independently for longer. And as I sit here writing, I realize and I hope that these blogs might themselves contribute to that change. What a great blog and final message. The good news is that I believe lots of progress has been made in getting Anna's service into the mainstream, so do read some of her recent contributions. In our next blog, we hear from Beth Eyre in an article first published back in September. Beth is a second year PhD student at the University of Sheffield, and here she's going to share what she wishes she'd known before she started her studies.
It's that time of year again when we welcome the new cohorts of PhD students. Firstly, I'd like to say congratulations. Getting accepted onto a PhD programme is a huge deal. You've clearly worked very hard for the past few years and now want to devote even more time to your specialist area. You should be so proud that you've got to this point. I can't quite believe that come October I'll be going into my third year of my PhD. The last two years have absolutely flown by. Strangely, I'll soon be in a position where first year PhD students may start to look up to me thinking I have all the answers. Sorry to let you down, but I sadly do not have all the answers. None of us do. But what I do have are my own experiences of what I wished I'd known before I started my PhD. So this vlog is going to be about the things I wished I'd known before I started. So hopefully you'll know these things early on and your transition can be as smooth as possible in the grand scheme of starting a PhD in a global pandemic, that is. It's okay to feel like you have no idea what you're doing. When you start a PhD, you have this feeling that everyone around you knows everything about the topic area, about their project, and just about life in general. This really isn't the case. The point of a PhD is to add something original to the field. It's likely that you are the first person to be doing many of the things you plan to do in your project. How cool is that? A PhD is a learning process, and in order to learn, you have to start somewhere. So feeling like you have no idea about what you're doing is part of that process. Your project will change. When I applied for my specific project, I genuinely thought it was all set in stone. I thought this was exactly what I'd be doing for the next three and a half years, but I was wrong. Projects change. Mine has definitely changed, but I'd say it's now going to be even more interesting than I thought it would be. So if you end up changing your project, that's totally okay plan time off. It's really easy to get sucked into your research. I've certainly been there. It's your own work. In order to progress, it's all down to you. And this can often mean you end up working longer hours than you should. Remember, taking breaks is not a bad thing. Taking breaks is actually good for motivation and can help avoid burnout. And you can read all about this in a previous blog of mine. I personally avoid working in the evenings and on weekends. This isn't always possible, but the majority of the time it is for me. Remember, rest does not need to be earned. Get to grips with a reference manager. I honestly had no idea what a reference manager was until I began my PhD. Up until my PhD, I did my references manually and with the help of Google Scholar. Can you imagine all of those lost hours? You'll be doing lots of reading during your PhD, so having a reference manager to store all those books and articles is a huge time saver. Reference managers also help when it comes to writing papers and your thesis, so they're definitely worth taking some time to get to grips with. I use EndNote, but others include Zotero or Mendeley. Write early and often. When I started my PhD, I was so worried about my writing. I'd always done better in exams throughout my education, and I was worried that I wouldn't be good enough at writing. I was also very self-conscious of the way I wrote, but I knew if I didn't deal with this, it would be an issue for me. So I started writing early. I wrote blog posts, my literature review, and now I'm writing up my first paper. My writing has definitely improved with practice. Additionally, it's important to keep in mind that the finished product you read in journals has been intensively edited. So try not to think that the first thing you write needs to read like a journal article. Everything will take longer than you think. This is something I'm still getting to grips with when I try to plan my weeks, but basically, Everything that you plan to do will take longer than you think, especially when it comes to learning new techniques, completing experiments, analysing experiments and writing up papers for publication. 
This is my own experience anyway. So my advice would be that when planning your week, ensure that you don't overplan and make sure to overestimate the time things will take. Get a hobby. Having a hobby during your PhD can be so helpful. Personally, I found having a hobby as a great distraction from my research and it's been nice to learn something new that isn't related to my PhD project. Don't compare yourself to others. It's really easy to start comparing yourself to others when you start your PhD, but it's important that you try your best not to. Everyone's PhDs are different, different topics, methods and supervisors. So it makes sense that people get to different stages at different time points. Try and remember that your PhD is your journey, not anyone else's. There are certainly many more things that I wished I'd known before I started my PhD, but these are just some of the ones that first came to mind when writing this blog. Again, these are my own personal feelings and I'm sure other individuals may have different suggestions. Good luck with your studies and I hope that this blog may help to ease your transition, even if just slightly. Enjoy the journey. That's a fantastic list. I definitely agree with number three there and taking time off, something I hope you're all doing this Christmas. Our next blog comes from Dr Emily Oliver and takes us back to February. During her time as a staff blogger, Emily wrote some really insightful articles. Emily's now back in the NHS in clinical practice as a lead dementia nurse in the NHS. But in this blog, she discusses how to formulate a research question. Hello everyone. If you've been reading my previous blogs, you will know that I'm keen to continue to grow the research element to my career, as, due to a number of reasons, this hasn't been the top of my agenda in my, within my current role. This is a big priority for me, and as such, I've been thinking about what to research. Although I have completed a PhD, which can be seen as the basis for a postdoc, I see myself going back to basics in terms of choosing a research focus, and even more importantly, a research question. It might be that you've undertaken many research projects but are struggling to pinpoint your next question, or it may be that you are new to research. In this blog, I'll be sharing hints and tips which I think would be beneficial to both scenarios, so I do hope you're able to take something from this. First and foremost, and again, if you've read my previous blogs, you will know that I say this a lot, pick a topic you're interested in. Of course, we need to consider the gaps in the evidence base, and let's be honest, what topics are being funded. But for me, the most important consideration that trumps all else is whether you are passionate about the topic. Real talk here. Research is tough. It is often full of setbacks, rejections, early starts and late nights. And it is that passion and interest in a topic that will keep you motivated through it all and keep you going. Once you have found a topic you are interested in, the next step is to try and narrow it down. I would kickstart with some preliminary reading about the topic. Start by scoping the literature that focuses on your topic of choice and start to ask yourself questions such as what is known about this topic? How do we build on what is known? What remains unanswered? Has this been explored in other settings? What does this look like for this population? What are the issues and how could they be resolved? Whilst you're reading, start to jot down some ideas of the topic areas and even draft some example questions. If you are a visual learner like me, get your colouring pens out and make a good old mind map. This would also be a good time to start thinking about the type of question you want to ask. The type of question you ask will vary depending on what you want to find out and will also have implications on your methodology. In some types of research, social sciences for example, it may be that you are able to have very open-ended research questions. And in some cases, quantitative research for example, it may be that the question is much more specific. <laughs> 
The table below has some examples of research questions. For example, descriptive research, what are the characteristics of X? Comparative research, what are the differences and similarities between X and Y? Correlational research, what are the main factors in X? What is the role of Y in Z? Exploratory research, does X have an effect on Y? What is the impact of Y on Z? What are the causes of X? Explanatory research, does X have an effect on Y? What is the impact of Y on Z? What are the causes of X? Evaluation research, what are the advantages and disadvantages of X? How well does Y work? How effective or desirable is Z? And action research, how can X be achieved? What are the most effective strategies to improve Y? Whether you are more interested in quantitative or qualitative research, my advice would be to try to have a more focused approach. Open-ended research questions can often lead to confusion in what to record and thus the collection of large data sets which can be hard to manage. Once you have a few questions jotted down, it's time to then evaluate them. There are a few ca characteristics of research questions that we should be sure to meet. Will it make an original contribution? The purpose of research is to generate new knowledge to fill the gaps in the evidence base. When looking at a question, ensure that it is original and that it hasn't already been answered. It's also worth checking whether it's big enough to be considered a research project and that it's not a service development or an audit. The Health Research Authority has a useful tool to help with this. Does it have connections with theory and or research? Although we do need to find gaps in the evidence base, it is important that there is already some theory or research that we can draw from. This may not be in your specialism and there may be research that's similar in different areas or it may be related topics. If there isn't already something of relevance, it may raise the question of whether it is worth researching. Is the question clear? Research questions do often need to be long and have multiple components, so I think it's important to say that clear doesn't always mean short. A good way to test the clarity of your question is to explain it to a layperson and see if they understand it. If you can't explain the research question clearly, it's unlikely somebody else will understand it. Is it concise? There is a fine balance between making a research question too broad or too narrow. Research questions need to be broad enough to make a con contribution. However, it's also key to ensure that you aren't trying to change the world. I remember when I started, I thought I was going to fix dementia care of my PhD. However, after a few months and a reality check, I quickly realised that this was not the case. It was just one small brick adding to the whole wall of research. And actually, that's more than enough. If you think you can answer yes to all of the above questions, then it's probably start time to share these with your supervisor and get going with your formal literature search and your proposal. It's key to remember that depending on what you want to research, this process could take days or it could take months. I also think it's realistic to think that your research question may slightly change as your research progresses and you get taken in all different directions. My last piece of advice is to try and enjoy this time. It's exciting to be generating a question that will be creating new knowledge and it's a real luxury to have a justified reason to take the time to read articles and to scope the literature to do so. See you next time. I love that topic and it's one you hardly ever hear talked about which probably explains why it's been a very popular article. The final in this show comes from Nadine Mirza from the 4th of March. Nadine is a postgraduate researcher and research assistant based at the Centre for Primary Care and Health Service Research at the University of Manchester and is also based at Salford Royal NHS Foundation Trust. Her blog is titled A Product of Failure, How I Fell Into Dementia Research.
Product of Failure, How I Fell into Dementia Research. I am a product of success. My father championed in both sports and academics and is now a very successful ophthalmologist. My mother boasts an even grander pedigree, overcoming childhood adversities to become a gold medalist. Two modeled first-generation immigrants who took their hard-earned gains back to their home country to give back. I grew up insulated by inspiring exemplars of success, hearing about my grandmother who started a business to drag her family out of poverty, my aunt who launched a second career in her 40s writing novels and completing a PhD, my uncle who went from working in his garage to creating the company that put light bulbs in the White House. Failure is something my family doesn't know how to do. Then I came along. I'm an MRC-funded postgraduate researcher at the University of Manchester, studying dementia diagnosis and ethnic minorities. I interact directly with service users of dementia services and their carers, exploring the cracks ethnic minorities are falling through and why. I've published, I've presented, I've won awards, and scored funding for passion projects. By all accounts, I should be deemed a success, impermeable to the disappointing stench of failure. Truthfully, I've been steadfastly failing upwards since 2008. From growing up in a vacuum of achievement, I was suddenly made aware of my shortcomings on the day I came home with four Fs. Reality set in when my friends and I all applied to the same university in Pakistan. I failed at that too, and while Manchester was still a stellar prospect, I remained overwhelmed by leaving everything familiar. Complemented by youthful ignorance and some ill-timed health issues, I failed modules in my first and second year. Though I ended up graduating well, finally getting a grip on the reins in third year, it was not well enough to get onto the clinical psychology MSc I planned for. I don't remember my graduation well because it's eclipsed by the day after. Tearfully reading another university rejection and having to once again say goodbye to what had become familiar. I remember weeks of the summer of 2015 paralyzed on my parents' couch trying to figure out how to resurrect my career when I felt responsible for digging its grave. I look back on that moment as a catalyst. I didn't know if a clinical psychology program would take me anymore, which would mean the end of my profession as I had imagined it. And I had been imagining it since I was 13. But I had no control over that anymore. It was time to go back to the drawing board and reimagine a career. Time to control what I could. I joined a four-month clinical placement meant for undergraduates at a government hospital in Pakistan. When I wasn't working, I studied at home and retrained on concepts and skills. All-nighters returned. I frantically went down every rabbit hole looking for options to strengthen my background so that one day people could look beyond my performance so far. I found the best option was to do a PhD, for which I would first need to do an MPhil. I asked for research work at my placement, my first true exposure to research in the field, and they let me collect data through depression questionnaires in a makeshift bomb shelter turned outpatient ward. I sporadically contacted potential supervisors and began devising acceptable pitches with my limited but growing knowledge. Neither dementia nor a research career were on my radar. I was simply looking for a means to an end to get onto the clinical psychology doctorate. When my current supervisor, a psychiatrist who champions the ethnic minority experience in mental health, agreed to a meeting with me, it was the first time the prospect of dementia was brought up. He was interested in the gaps of current cognitive tests used to diagnose dementia, 
and how they were ill-suited for non-white, non-English-speaking populations. I didn't know much about the journey, or much about dementia, really, but I was up for the ride, and somehow he decided to give me a chance. In 2016, one person's belief in me went on to change the entire trajectory of my career and my life. The prodigal daughter returned to Manchester and the grueling load of the MPhil was some of the most strenuous and passionate work I've ever given myself up to. I conducted a systematic review and qualitative synthesis, collected data through questionnaires, focus groups and interviews, developed guidelines and an assessment, and wrote up a 300-page thesis on the translation and cultural adaptation of cognitive tests. It was more than a labor of love. It was a labor of desperation, an opportunity to rewrite the record. But this time, I was aware of how to approach counseling, how to better manage my time and study habits, and of my own strengths and limitations. I was better used to living alone and doing everything for myself. I ended up finishing three months early and graduating with minor corrections and merit. My department was so pleased with my efforts, it segued into a research assistant position and eventually into my funded PhD. I remember my supervisor calling me into his office and showing me the application for MRC funding, this highly competitive scholarship for the top medical research candidates in the UK. My little Emphil and I were intimidated, not just at how incredibly difficult this was going to be, but also if I was starting to stray away from my original intent of becoming a clinical psychologist. I had been so fixated on one end goal for so long, I was afraid to pigeonhole myself further down the unfamiliar research route. I said, I don't think I can do this. He didn't say I could. He said, you will. I've been doing that PhD on improving British South Asians access to dementia services, along with teaching, writing, clinical work, and supervising independent research projects for nearly four years now. There is no cramming into the pigeonhole, quite the opposite. I became exposed to the multitude of opportunities I hadn't realized existed for me or that I was even capable of accessing. For so long, I wasn't aware that clinical psychologists can also be researchers and writers and policymakers and public engagers and business trainers. It wasn't until my PhD that this was brought to my attention. I had been obsessed with clinical psychology, but now that blind obsession was replaced with passion and from multiple si simultaneous avenues. I'm reshaping my career into a multidisciplinary venture. People ask me all the time how I arrived at the work I'm doing today. The honest answer is that I fell into it. There was no strategy, no five-year plan. I had never intended to become so immersed in the experiences of dementia and South Asians, nor did I realize how much I would begin to genuinely care about and advocate for this work. Halfway into my fourth year, it's just dawning on me how much knowledge I've absorbed, not just about dementia, but about the research world, and most of the time through failures. My papers from my MPhil were rejected multiple times before being accepted for publication, and major revisions don't faze me anymore. It made me a better writer. I was heavily critiqued in a three-hour first-year viva with my manuscript sent back in the red, but I learned from each and every comment. It made me a critical researcher. I broke out into hives before my first oral presentation due to nerves, so now I practice every talk I give multiple times. It made me an award-winning speaker. I dropped out for six months because of medical leave and fell drastically behind. 
It made me flexible to the natural adversities of life that will interrupt and interfere with our successes. Today, I still have lofty aspirations to be a clinical and occupational psychologist, but I'm supplementing that with all the other transferable skills I'm learning. I'm applying my research skills and dementia knowledge to an independent research project centered around ethnic minorities' access to neuropsychological services. I deliver training around research methods, both in collaboration with organizations and independently as a way of sending the latter down to others. And I brainstorm little side research projects to build up upon my work on cognitive testing and ethnic minorities, just so it doesn't gather dust on the shelf. I attribute all of this to my past failures, the ones I was so ashamed of facing, and how they conspired to put me on the path I'm on today. I no longer feel defined by these failures. They're no longer the first thing people see about me, or even what I think about myself when it comes to what I'm achieving in life. There was a time when I was haunted by my failures on a daily basis. Now I'm able to constructively reflect on them. I have learned what a privilege it is to be allowed to fail. And this is all the result of my supervisor being able to look past my failures on day one and effectively recognize it for what it was, learning. This recognition is what academia, an entire world built around trial and error, should be nurturing. The failures are the ones who learn from their circumstances, who learn how to overcome those circumstances. The failures are the learners who, when things start to fall apart, as many things do in life, will think outside the box to succeed. And more often than not, the failures are the ones who failed on an uneven playing field, who were failed by the rest of us, who have probably learned more than any of us can imagine through that failure. When academia doesn't give a chance to those that fail, academia misses out on its biggest successes. As I grow more confident in how my career is turning out, I am aware there will be many who are in the position I was, who believe you need certain scores and a flashy portfolio of experience to make it anywhere in academia and even anywhere in life. From someone who felt that strongly and unconditionally, I cannot tell you what a relief it was to realize that is not the case. There is no singular straight and narrow trail. There are always multifaceted approaches to an aspiring end goal, but you have to be ready to do the work to find them. Do the research, approach the experts, self-study, stalk the blogs, make social media connections. Be ready to think outside that box. And as you work towards that end goal, you might find yourself gravitating towards a new one. Don't be afraid of changing your mind or even your entire career. Don't be afraid of the pigeonhole like I was. Say yes to every opportunity that comes your way every single one, because you won't know what you're great at till you try it all. And as you hone your skills, start creating opportunities for yourself from scratch. Above all, do not shy away from your failures. They're not a dirty secret you need to hide. My successes weren't born from the absence of failures. They were created by them. I am a product of failure. That final message is so inspirational and a great way to end this roundup. Don't shy away from your failures, embrace them, learn and move on. That's all we have time for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more great blogs from our 2021 archive. Thank you for listening. Join the Dementia Research bloggers and share your own views.